Mark chapter 14. I would encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, grab one from the, the seat back pocket um, and turn there. I would love for you to see this in the copy of God's Word. Mark chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does this seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Now, I want you to see how this so-called trial is playing out. This was a Jewish trial in front of a Jewish court according to Jewish law. The Romans had not yet gotten involved. Now, in order to put Jesus to death, the Romans were going to have to get involved. The Jews were not allowed under Roman rule to execute capital punishment. But this was an important trial because they could try Jesus, find him uh, um, measuring according to death, according to Jewish law, and then they could bring that to Pilate, who was the ruler and judge, and say, this man is worthy of death. Would you please give us blessing? Or would you actually uh, execute him? Now, According to Jewish law, to condemn someone to death, you had to have testimony from two or more witnesses that agreed in every detail. Any disagreement, any misalignment in the testimony, you couldn't have. That wasn't a fair trial, and he wasn't going to be put to death. The whole time, these accusations are coming against Jesus. Nothing agrees. Nothing sticks. The trial should have been over. In fact, Jesus doesn't even say anything at the beginning of this trial. He's just letting them, you know, their own evidence is falling apart against them. Everything they're accusing him of is not correct. It's not right. And so therefore it does not align. And Jesus is quiet. By the way, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, which says, you know, like a sheep going to slaughter, he did not open his mouth. That was a prophecy of Messiah. Now, at this point in time, the trial should be thrown out. It should be over, but we know that the council, particularly the high priest, who was a man named Caiaphas, has an agenda. They want him dead, and that's clear in the text. We also know it from other texts as well. So Caiaphas, at that point in time, the trial has not gone well from their perspective. Caiaphas steps in, and he begins to interrogate Jesus himself, trying to get Jesus to say something now that will trip him up. And so he asks Jesus this very powerful and very specific yes or no question. Are you the Christ? 
Now think about this for a minute. Up until that moment, Jesus is kind of winning the trial, right? So if Jesus' objective was to get loose and go free, I think all he has to do is continue to stay silent because there's no testimony against him that lines up. Note what happens. That's the moment Jesus decides to open his mouth and he answers the question. After he answers the question, the place explodes Verse 63, right? There's tearing of robes. I mean, like, it's mayhem. The the whole council's going berserk. They're spitting on him, blindfolding him, punching him, slapping him. They say, you're you're now going to be deserving of death. No more need for witnesses. We're the witnesses. We heard the blasphemy. You're done. Now, what happened? Simply believing that your Messiah was not enough to condemn someone to death, right? It might be dangerous, might be foolish if you believe your Messiah, but that, that's not against the law. What did Jesus say that was so terrible in their eyes that was worth condemning of death? Well, I want to drill down into verse 62. So let's, we've, we've looked at the forest of the passage. Now let's look at one particular tree, verse 62. Here's Jesus' answer to the question, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. All right? That's an explosive answer. Here's why. He's intentionally sending a message. He's saying, not only am I the Christ, what you've thought the Christ was going to be, but I'm the kind of Christ that's going to blow your expectations out of the water. In fact, I am actually God himself who will come to judge everything and everyone, including you. That's what Jesus is saying. All that is in this text. Now, where am I getting all this from? The Old Testament references that Jesus is piecing together in his answer. Uh, if you've got, you know, um, you know, margin notes, you know, you'll probably have some references here. If not, you can write these down in, in your Bible. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. That's what Jesus is going back to. Psalm 110, you know, uh, is, is about the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand right? This is a messianic expectation of someone who's not just going to be a a human king, but is actually going to share power with God the Father. In other words, there's divinity being implied there. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is that prophecy about the Son of Man, which is the title Jesus is claiming for himself. You know, you're going to see the Son of Man, i.e. me, coming on the clouds of heaven, Now, what's remarkable about the Son of Man prophecy in Daniel is that's the moment when Daniel sees a vision. He says, I saw one like a Son of Man, and he was given by the Father dominion and rule and judge over all the earth. And he came like with the clouds of heaven. Uh, Don't think of like the, the water droplets that crystallize into white fluffy things in our sky. That's not the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven in Scripture is the Shekinah glory of God. This is the presence of God. This is the power of God. And Jesus is saying, I am that one that Daniel saw the vision of, and I will return to rule over the earth, to judge over the earth. No matter what happens in this trial, I'm coming back to judge you. No wonder the place explodes, right? Now, I've been wondering if Jesus had just stayed silent, what would have happened? But he intentionally, purposefully did not stay silent. 
You know, remember when he's in the garden? He says, is there any other way but not my will, not my will but your will? Yet Jesus is acting that out, right? That commitment he made in Garden of Gethsemane, he's now saying, this is the moment that I'm going to open my mouth and I'm just going to tell the truth and the truth will condemn me to death. Here's the, the, the lesson as I thought about this. Lesson from the first half of our passage. Jesus is the judge, capital J, judge, who was willingly judged. Jesus was the judge, the judge, and he was willingly judged. This is amazing when you think about it. Who's on the, the, the dock here? Who's, who's being tried and put to death? God himself. This is the moment in time that God foresaw in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world and judgment was going to be required. There was going to be a moment in time that mankind would stand in judgment over the God of the universe and condemn him to death. And this is that moment. And our God willingly submits himself to the judgment of mankind. He's the judge who was willingly judged. Who should have been on the dock? Who should have been answering questions? Who should have been under the judgment? Us. Right? Yes, the Jewish council. Yes, the religious leaders. Yes, Caiaphas. But also you. Also you. Also you. Also me. We're the ones deserving of judgment. The judge was willingly judged. Now, all the while, Peter is nearby. In fact, Mark has strategically mentioned Peter at the very top of our passage so you can understand that what you were about to read, Peter's denials, were happening literally at the same time as this trial was happening. Don't miss the irony in the scene. Jesus is being condemned for speaking the truth about his identity. The very same time, Peter is lying about his identity, Peter's identity, and he's going to go free. This is what Mark is setting us up for here. So let's look at the other scene that's happening down below in the courtyard. Verse 66. I'll read 66 to 72. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. Now, that's number one, denial number one. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. That's number two. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Number three. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. 
Now, there's a fascinating connection between what happens in this passage and what happens at the very end of our earlier passage. If you remember, we ended the scene with Jesus above on the, in the, the balcony, and he was blindfolded. You remember the guards were striking him and slapping him and hitting him, and what were they saying to him? Prophesy. In other words, they were, they were making fun of him as a false prophet. They were probably saying, you know, you know who hit you just now? You know, boom. Tell, tell me my name. You know, tell, tell me who just struck you. Prophesy, oh prophet. Ha, ha, ha. Making fun of him. While all that's going on up above, Peter down below is, is, is inadvertently proving that Jesus is a true prophet. Because what he had just told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then boom, that rooster crows and it all comes back. The prophecies come true. Peter just collapses in an emotional heap. What have I done? Now, I want to highlight one little detail in the text that we just read that demonstrates, I believe, Peter's failure was actually much, much worse than what we tend to think. All right, now, where am I getting this from? Look at verse 71. Let's drill down in verse 71. But he began, this is Peter, began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Now, we hear curse and swear and like there's some choice four-letter words that come to our mind. That's not what cursing and swearing is meaning here, right? This is not just foul language. There probably was some of that alongside this, right? You know, Peter was a fisherman, you know. He, was, he wasn't exactly a white-collar uh, professional kind of guy. But what the cursing and swearing it refers to, it, it's... It's two unique verbs that, that mean something different. There's two verbs that kind of go in different directions. One is cursing of himself. Now, why would Peter curse himself? What he's essentially saying here is, if I'm lying, may God curse me. Isn't that ironic? That's the first verb. Actually, that, that's the second verb in the text. But the, the other verb is he's cursing someone else. So we know from the verb tense, it's not reflexive, he's cursing somebody else. It's an outward-facing verb. Now, there's only two possibilities of who he could be cursing. He could be cursing the people that are accusing him of that, right? That may not be smart for Peter because he's trying to align. He's trying to say, no, I, I'm with you. I don't know that man. I'm not a follower of that man. What's more likely happening is Peter is cursing his master in order to demonstrate that he's not a disciple of Jesus because a disciple would never curse his master. So if I could just paraphrase what I believe is happening here in this text, what Peter is actually saying here is, I swear I don't know that man. Curse him. And may God curse me if I'm lying. What kind of disciple is this? What's even more remarkable is why is that level of detail and, 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 and terrible revelation of Peter's exact words, why is that in the text? Now, we've mentioned before that scholars believe that Peter was Mark's primary source when Mark wrote down the story in the gospel. In fact, many scholars believe Mark was the first gospel written. Peter was the primary source. Peter was the eyewitness, right, that Mark used... To, to, to hear what happened. Now, why do they believe that? Why do, why do scholars believe that Peter was the eyewitness that Mark used in his primary source? And why does it even matter? Okay, 
Four very quick reasons. I'm going to run through this fast. Why, why we're convinced, you know, collectively uh, that, that Peter was Mark's primary source. Number one, Mark mentions Peter proportionately more than any other gospel does. Now that in and of itself doesn't tell us much, but it is there. Secondly, Peter's presence in Mark's narrative is all the way through. There's hardly a scene in Mark's gospel that Peter's not present, either individually or collectively. Third, Mark reveals a lot of details that only Peter would know. A great example here is verse 66. Peter was below in the courtyard. No other gospel mentions that. How did Mark know it? Peter told him. Peter was there. Peter was the only disciple, as far as we know, that was there to kind of demonstrate that little detail. The last reason, and I think this is the most profound reason why scholars believe Peter was Mark's primary source, is Mark's gospel makes Peter look terrible. And no one else would dare do that because Peter, at the time the gospels were written, was the leader of the church. Right? Now think about this. You've got a new church, got things going, you've got things being written down, and we're, we're going to write something down that makes our leader look like the worst disciple. He cursed the master. I don't think they would do that without Peter saying it himself. I think the fact that we have preserved what I just read is a testimony that later in life Peter was healed so profoundly that he could say, yeah, I cursed the master. I wept bitterly. I said I didn't know him and I called for God's curse down upon me and I even cursed him to separate myself from him. Peter, later in life, could be so comfortable in his own skin that he could name his own weakness. Here's, I think, the lesson that we can get from this text in the context of Peter's life. Failure need never be final. Failure need never be final. And so we know in John's gospel how Jesus restores Peter. In John 21, Jesus comes to him. He says, Peter, do you love me? And this is the first time they've been eye to eye since this moment, this bitter moment. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He asks him how many times? Not once, not twice, three times. And he graciously gives Peter the ability to say words of new life in contrast to the words of death that Peter had spoken. He says, Jesus, yes, I do love you. I do love you. I do love you. And then Jesus says, yes, you do, and you will feed my sheep and you will tend to my lambs, and you will shepherd my church, and you will even lay down your life for me because you do love me. And Peter's restored, right? Peter is healed, so much so that in his future life, he can be that weak vessel Tim was talking about earlier, being outward with his weakness so that inward power of Christ can shine through. And I think that's not... I think that's why Peter was such a good leader. He was not a great leader in spite of his weakness. He was a great leader because of his weakness that was shown forth through the grace of Christ. So here's what I want to do as we begin to sort of wrap up. I want to take lesson one and lesson two and put them together and apply them to us. And I think here's the big idea of, of this whole passage. Jesus was the judge who was willingly judged Therefore, your failure 
need never be final to. And I want you to see the connection between the just judge who was willingly judged and the being set free from your failure. All right, that's the connection I got to drill down here on a couple of minutes. Look at the parallels between these two portions of text. Jesus was put on trial. Peter was put on a trial of a different kind. Jesus was asked a question about his identity. Peter was asked a question about his identity. Aren't you with him? Aren't you a disciple? Jesus told the truth and was condemned for it. Peter told a lie. And because of his lie, he went free. Now, so ironic. But it's not just irony. It's deeper than that. You see, Jesus didn't just suffer unjustly. He suffered substitutionally. And you got to understand the difference as a Christian. It wasn't just unjust that Jesus went to the cross. It was that. It was a terrible trial, a terrible legal process. It was a choice he made. He suffered substitutionally, not just unjustly. He suffered for Peter. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. At the most important level, Peter could go free, not just while Jesus was going to death, but because Jesus was going to death. And the real freedom that Peter had was not just escaping the chains that night. The real freedom happened in John chapter 21 when Jesus restored him to life, you see. This is the essence of the gospel. Peter's a failure. You're a failure. I'm a failure. Not one of us has not cursed our God in some way, shape, or form with our thoughts, with our words, with our behavior, with our attitudes, with our rebellion, with the hardness of our hearts. Not one of us can say we are not Peter. How was Peter set free? Because Jesus took the curse that Peter called down on himself. Jesus bore the curse for Peter's freedom, for our freedom. This is the gospel. Now, some of you in this room have some failure in your life or some area of shame in your life that's really holding you back. And you know in your head you're forgiven. You know, you know you're supposed to be set free from that. But you're kind of you're just going through the motions of your Christian life because the reality is you don't feel worthy to be used by God in a powerful way, in a profound way. Listen, men and women, one of my dreams for our church is that this message of freedom through the gospel will, will not just sort of you know, satisfy our, our need to know that we're going to be in heaven, although that is absolutely true and beautiful and wonderful, but it's going to set us free and propel us out to begin serving him and leading and even laying down our lives, i.e. giving our lives away. How and why? Because of the truth of the gospel, because of the freedom that that brings. So for those of you that your failure is holding you back, whether past failure or ongoing current struggle and failure, you need to know that you don't have to get your life straight and in order to be forgiven by God and set free to be used. All you have to do is confess your need. All you have to do is just say, Rob, do you love me? But I failed again. But, but I'm weak. But, but I don't have enough to do what you've called me to do. Don't think about all that, Rob. Rob, do you love me? Oh, but God, I don't love you as much as I should. No, no, no. Let me, let me, let me lift your head. Let me ask you again. Do you love me? Well, yes, I love you. 
Jesus, I want for us. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to go out. Our Father, we love you, and we love your Son, Jesus. And we don't love him like we should, but we do love him, and we do love you, because you have first loved us. And I pray, Father, that that love for us would penetrate our hard hearts. That love for us would jolt us into thinking that that church is something that we just um, consume and experience as a healthy and good part of a healthy life, but that we would actually understand that you have set us free for a purpose and for a reason, and that we would be engaged in that And I pray, God, that you would strengthen us and you would empower us. And I pray for this body whom I care for and love, that you would strengthen them and you would encourage them even today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.